Welcome to the Learning That Sticks podcast. I'm Mark Williams from GiraffePad, the learning platform for learning journeys. In this podcast series, I'll be speaking with experts from around the world of learning and development, exploring with them their different ideas, techniques, and methods, their magic sauce, if you like, for creating learning solutions that truly stick. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Jamie Dixon, and we're going to explore how to make training as absolutely practical as possible. Jamie, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a real privilege. I've been absolutely looking forward to this conversation. I can't tell you, Jamie. So maybe just before we, for the benefit of our listeners, before we get into the truly sticky stuff, um, could you give us a bit of, bit of a background to yourself, you know, your career in learning and, and how it's evolved to, to where you are right now? Yeah, so it started about 15 years ago when I, um, I graduated from university and didn't have a clue um, about what to do with myself. And so I decided to fly halfway around the world to teach English in China. And so I spent, I spent two years teaching English in China and decided I wanted to stay long term in China and didn't really know what to do outside of teaching English. So started looking for a job as a headhunter. And as I was uh, interviewing with various headhunting companies, uh, none of them really wanted me, but one kept my CV on file. Um, and a interesting opportunity um, popped up at Amway China. And um, Amway China was very, very well developed for their training resources because it was a, a legal requirement because of the nature of their business uh, to provide all of their salespeople with, with training. And at the time, Amway Southeast Asia didn't have as many training resources. And so they needed a cultural bridge to come and help Amway China share the uh, training resources with Amway Southeast Asia. And um, you know, my background in English teaching at the time was quite relevant. And uh, you know, also, I also spoke fluent Mandarin, plus I'm a native English speaker. So it was the perfect job for me, really. And that was my introduction into the world of corporate training. And so after a few years, I, I left that and joined a training company um, and traveled around China, uh, delivering soft skills, general soft skills training to their clients. And since 2014, I've been working independently. And so my focus is, um, you know, I really enjoy designing practical training, and it tends to be for anything around leadership and soft skills, um, and mostly for multinational companies in the greater China and Asia Pacific region. Yeah. Fantastic. And it, it always uh, puts a smile on my face when I talk to other people in the world of learning as to how many of them never really sat out, set out in their career to end up in a, in a world of learning. And then as your story tells, you've ended up running your very successful business for yourself in the world of learning and training without ever having sort of planned that um, from education. Now, Jamie, we connected um, on LinkedIn, I think, through some mutual connections. And I think one of the reasons I so pleased to connect with you and so pleased to get you on this podcast is I see the posts that you put out and I'm always inspired by your ideas and your challenge to the world of learning and to make it really sticky and really effective. And then you mentioned just then in your intro about um, that word practical. Um, give me a bit more background to why that's so important to you. What is it about being practical that makes um, what you do work so well and what for anyone, if you like? I think it's being in China in particular that, that has really uh, influenced me to get very practical because the Chinese are extremely practical people. 
And, you know, there's several reasons for that. The one is that uh, the pace of development over here is just, it's outrageous. And I remember, you know, as an example, I remember in 2006, I went up one of the skyscrapers in Shanghai, which at the time was the fourth tallest building in the world. Six months later, there was one right next to it, even taller. And that that's just normal for China. And so you have a lot of people in the training room over here who are used to outrageous speed of doing things. And so because everything is so fast, they don't have patience for any fluff, anything that's irrelevant, um, anything that they can't use. And I and also they're not very conceptual. They're very, very practical people. They focus on problems, solutions, goals, actions. That's all they care about. And um, as I've been working as a trainer, I've worked with a lot of uh, European training companies uh, representing them over here. And I find that the European approach just doesn't really go down well in China. Um, the European approach tends to be start with why and talk about what you've got to do. And then for the how part, the idea is you let the participants figure out the how part. Um, but that just doesn't fly in China. I've been challenged constantly to figure out the how part and package that in a way that really resonates with them. So um, that's really what's influenced me to to really focus on getting practical. It's been it's been more of a necessity because I I think the participants over here are, you know, some of the most impatient and challenging people uh, to train in the world. Um, so that's why. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because in a way, I, I completely understand the way you describe it as a cultural uh, element for where you are based in China. Um, but also it makes it puts a big question mark in my mind about how we might approach it in Europe as being possibly a bit too conceptual, a bit too highbrow thinking and, and missing some of the, the practical element. And I, and I remember a quote that I think one of our mutual connections put onto one of your posts where they said, learning works when it's light on theory, uh, heavy on practice and deep in reflection. And of course, the practice and reflection is often left, certainly how we might approach over here, is often left to the participant to do on their own. And it's really where the real learning actually happens. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think uh, part of the root of this is is um, is cultural influence. And I was reading a really interesting book called The Patterning Instinct by uh, Jeremy Lent, which I, I strongly recommend for anyone interested in culture and history. And he talks about how Western culture is heavily influenced by ancient Greece, where they took the uh, the rational as divine. And they were very obsessed with concepts and and the idea of a concept is that you isolate something from its context. And as an example, um, the word the only exists, well, it, it doesn't exist in Chinese or Japanese. Um, it, it's, ve it's very much a European word. And the function is to isolate something from context. So, for example, it's not a pen or this pen, it's the pen. Whereas in Chinese culture, um, there's no the, there's no word for the. And I find when you're talking about concepts with Chinese people in the room, they really want you to give examples and ground things. So I think in European cultures, 
we have a tendency towards the concept and we really like to think at that level. And, you know, there are advantages of thinking at that level. But in the Chinese world, they're really, really grounded in their thinking. And so they, um, they're just, you know, not a big fan of contextual, of conceptual thinking over here. I'd like to pick up as well on, on what you were saying from a from a practical point of view. When you're working with with your clients and your participants, they they can be really impatient and and quite demanding of you. So if I go back a step, how, how do you what do you do to make sure the the training sessions, the learning sessions you design are as practical as possible? Because I know you have a passion for the design element of this, and I think our listeners would really benefit from hearing some of your principles, if you like, in the way you go about making sure that anything you design is going to meet their impatient <laughs> needs. Mm. Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, there's something I do um, called app- uh, application context analysis. And it's a, it's a simple tool that I designed. Um, and the idea is that you analyze the context of the learner's world. And you think about when they're back at work, in that moment when they have a chance to apply whatever it is you want them to learn from the training, what is that context like at that moment? And so, for example, um, time. What time is it? How much time will they have in that moment? And feelings. How are they going to be feeling just before that moment? How are they going to be feeling in that moment? What's going to be causing those feelings? Environment. Where are they going to be? Uh, People. Who are they going to be with? And so on. So one thing I always like to do when I'm designing training is try really, really hard to understand the learner's context when they're applying things. And I find I get a really a lot of really, really good insights from that. So for example, um, uh, it, you know, it's, it's quite common to get a coaching skills for managers training uh, request come up. And when I, uh, you know, before I even had the, the idea of application context analysis, I would just go to the typical resources about coaching and uh, you know see what things I could take from here and put into a training course. And it's things like the GROW model and, oh, you shouldn't give advice. You should only ask questions. But when I started doing application context analysis, I discovered that these managers, they tend to be really busy. Um, when they have a chance to coach people, it's a few, mo- a few minutes at a time. Uh, they're normally feeling quite rushed. Uh, they've got 101 other things they want to talk about. And, you know, when I was looking at that picture of their world compared to the executive coaching style of coaching where you sit down one-on-one in a meeting room for one hour and don't talk about anything else and you don't give advice, it it seemed like it was just it was too, uh, too much of a leap um, and it really wouldn't fit into their context. So... When I analyze their context, I find that um, some of the things I already had in mind for training just wouldn't fit in there. And what I tend to find is that it needs to be something very, very simple because people don't have a lot of energy when it comes to changing. Um, So first thing I like to do is analyze their context and understand what their world is like. The second thing that you've probably seen me talk about a lot is designing tools because, uh, and by tools, I mean things like checklists, profile, uh, uh, checklists, uh, templates, 
forms, processes, and so on. And, and the idea with a tool is that you take knowledge and instead of depending on them remembering that knowledge, you package it up into something that they can take away and reference in their moment of need. And, you know, a few years ago, I, I, I published a book called Shaping Paths, How to Design and, and Deliver pr uh, Practical Training. And um, one of the things that I learned in the process of researching and writing this book was just how terrible the human memory is. Um, there's so, so, so many reasons that people will forget things. Um, I think I listed something like 12 different reasons in that book. And so it, it, that just really said to me that we should just give up any hope of depending on them remembering things. And instead of depending on them remembering things, outsource what you need them to remember uh, into the, the world around them. And we do that every day. We do that with smartphones. We do it with post-it notes. We might rearrange furniture so that when we see it, we go, ah, yes, I'm supposed to do that. That's us outsourcing memory. And so if it's so important that we need them to remember it, then don't depend on the human memory, uh, outsource it and put it into a tool. Uh, and I find that goes down really, really well um, in, in training. And not just over here, when I have worked with people from other nationalities, they also really appreciate the tool approach because Everything that you cover in the training is condensed into a tool. They don't need to remember anything. It makes it a lot easier to introduce things so you don't have to lecture for as long. And then just go ahead and practice and evaluate yourself according to the tool. So application context analysis, designing tools. And the one last thing I would say is I'm, you know, I, I, I've heard arguments that, um, a trainer or a facilitator doesn't need to be an expert in the subject that they're training. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't really agree with that. I think it's really important that the subjects that we're training, we have strong personal experience in and strong competence in. Um, because otherwise, we don't have a lot of credibility to deliver that. And um, it's it's very, very hard to really bring it to life. But more importantly than competence and experience is awareness. Um, and, and so when we get a high level of expertise in something, we sacrifice awareness for the sake of effectiveness. So for example, if you're learning to drive a car, when you first learn to drive, it's really, really awkward because every single step you have to master independently. You have to master how to use the gear stick and the clutch and, oh, I need to look and I need to indicate. Every single one of those is a step that needs to be mastered. But as we get more experienced, all of those are condensed into one step, which is just drive. And, and a challenge that a lot of... Um, uh, trainers or experts have when it comes to training is that the beginner is trying to master how to use a gear stick. And the only answer an expert can give them is you just drive because they've completely lost awareness of how they do things. 
So another way to make training practical is to regain awareness of how you actually do things. What are the individual steps that you follow when you are doing that? What are your thinking processes? What, what is the first thing that you think of? What is the first thing that you notice? And really trying to regain that awareness and summarize into a list of steps. And then you're able to explain again, oh, this is how you do this. So I, I think three things for making training practical, application context analysis, designing tools, and regaining awareness of, of how you actually do things. There is so much to unpack in what you've just described, Jamie. That's just <laughs> incredible. I really like the way you've described that. And even before you got to the bit about awareness, it was interesting to talk about, because I asked you at the beginning how you go about designing practical training. And I think a lot of trainers, often when I speak to them about design work, they talk about building in exercises, writing, the scripts for the day, whatever they do to build it. And what you focused on is, is almost bookending the learning intervention. You've got this application context, which is you can't even begin to design it until you've done that bit. And then you've got the tools that you're sharing with them afterwards as their takeaways, that is their reminder, their go-to resource to help them apply in the moment when they can. Mm. Can we just have a look at those two for a moment? The, the application context model that you talk about, do you currently, with your, your the work that you do and the clients mm. you work with, um, is that part of your if you like your approach, if, if a client, if, for example, I was a client and I approached you to, to come and work with my managers in my organization, um, what would you do to gain that really detailed insight around the context mm. of their role? Mm. Yeah, so typically it's either surveys or, or through interviews. And some clients are really, really cooperative and will go to great lengths to arrange those interviews for you and and spend a long time asking people, you know, could you tell me about well, what is your world like and, and um, what's going on in that moment and, and how are you feeling in that moment and so on. Um, that's the ideal situation where you can actually have those interviews um, or even ask those, you know, if you don't have time to have those interviews, ask those questions in a survey. But I honestly find uh, there are a lot of clients, I don't know if this is, if this is unique to China, there are a lot of clients who, um, you know, don't provide uh, the ideal circumstances to do those interviews. So um, what I tend to do is just ask one simple question. Um, could you tell me a bit about their working context? What, what is their work like? And that one simple question can reveal some very, very useful information. So for example, I was working with a, a very famous video games company uh, last year, and it was the less than ideal scenario where we have about an hour to sit down and discuss everything. And, um, and we were talking about running an intercultural communication skills training. And so I, I started by asking, you know, what, what are all the challenges that you see? What are the problems that you want them to solve? And then one really critical question I asked them was, in what context are these 
are these problems most problematic? And, and they were telling me it's problems like um, they're not really, uh, they're not speaking their mind openly. Um, they don't understand um, what each other is saying. They're struggling to influence their colleagues overseas. And in what context do those problems become most problematic? And they said, well, I think there's, I think there's, there's three main contexts. One is when they're writing emails. When they're writing emails, uh, that's when a lot of misunderstandings happen. Two is when they're having conference calls, and uh, three is when they're just having face-to-face. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, when they're having phone calls with individuals. So those three contexts tell me. Everything in the training has to be focused on how to solve these problems in uh, email communication, conference calls, and phone phone calls. Um, and I, I got that from just one question. So it doesn't have to be very a very complicated and thorough process. Um, but if you have an opportunity to do that, that's great. Um, and, and if you don't have the opportunity to do that, then you can get it through one question. Just get some quite critical information there. You know, listening to your approach there, it takes me back to to when I was working with clients and delivering and training. And and I'm being really honest, there were times when I didn't do this well enough. But I imagine now, if I was at that point where a client came to me and said, look, we want to do X, we want to do Y, Mark, can you come and work with us? Like a lot of us, I'm quite visual. I'm picturing what you describe. I can almost see myself with a big flip chart. And on it, because you mentioned things about what would they feel like? Who would they who would they be near? What would their colleagues be doing when they're doing this? Um, what would their concerns or fears be? And you could actually build a, a really nice visual, couldn't you? Which if I was looking yeah. at that, to then plan how I would run that session and get your expertise across or get them excited and motivated about learning would be such a good practical point because you're almost, you're visualizing them going back and doing their practice, aren't you? Because you're contextualizing the moment they do whatever it is you train. So in your instance, when they're writing that email or when they're about to have a one-on-one phone call um, and everything you do is leading to that point that they can practice that and get the, the sort of feedback loop that they need to get from it. Absolutely. And, you know, another... Another great thing about focusing on that on, on context is that you can identify the 20% of contexts where 80% of problems emerge. So la- last year I worked on a project with a very big um, financial institution where um, headquarters in US were uh, asking for support in managing projects uh, from their different regional sites. And you know, one is in India, one is in China. And um, the Chinese were really struggling to influence and, and buy, uh, well, and, and gain those projects. And they were starting to actually lose business to India, to their, to their, uh, uh, their colleagues in India. Um, because they're very, very good at persuading. And so we were, you know, doing a, a bit of an analysis and asking what, uh, you know, what are all the pro- problems that come up? And then when do these problems come up? And, uh, and, and we were working with a lot of people. It was probably about you know, it's probably about 50 people roughly. So it's it's not very efficient to go in and do an application context analysis for each individual, especially when they're in so many different departments. But we identified some critical moments when 
these problems really blow things out of proportion. And it's things like uh, when they start managing a new customer relationship, when they start managing that new customer relationship, or when there is a uh, when there is a problem that has just emerged and they need to report it to someone. And, and little moments like that. And so when you identify those 20% of moments where 80% of the problems are caused, that's when you can really zoom in and focus on what's going on in those moments in particular. And I find it's really important to do that before even designing, uh, because then you know what's actually going to fit. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And you're not trying to design something that covers off absolutely everything you're focusing in. So you can actually run a far more laser-focused, tailored session that is around practical takeaways that they can go and implement as soon as they encounter that particular 20% moment you're talking about. Um, so the other side of sort of the second part you were talking about from practical training was the, the tools that you design that they they take away with them. They've got then as that, you, you use the phrase outsourcing to this resource that is there to support them in those moments. Would you mind giving sharing an example of a tool that you've designed just so the listeners can sort of see how your mind works to bring something like this to life? Sure. So in my ideal world, um, a, a tool it fits into a it fits into a high level framework. So, for example, uh, just the other week, I designed a meeting management uh, and facilitation skills training for for a client who um, whose meetings are a bit of a, a bit of a disaster, and um, the the framework I called Ease. Uh, which stands for engage the right people, align on the agenda, structure the discussion, and execute the action plan. And you know, I'm sure you, anyone who's attended a meeting can figure out <laughs> how, how those things work. Um, and then it was a question of uh, designing tools for each, uh, each of those steps. So for example, engage the right people. Here's a checklist of uh, this person, uh, you know, need to answer yes to all of the, these questions before I decide to invite them. And before I even decide to have a meeting, uh, here's another checklist. Is it is it right to, to have a meeting? Um, then align on the agenda. And there was a template I provided them with to um, to write their agendas and, and prepare the, their agendas. And so I, I had little tools for each of these steps. Now, one thing that's really important to keep in mind uh, is uh, it, it's this concept from design called uh, the path of desire. And so the uh, the path of desire, if you've ever walked through a a, a uh, a park or a public footpath. You, you've seen this before where uh, the, the designers tried to design a really roundabout path to get you to walk through the, the trees and enjoy the, the countryside. But what everyone does is they just cut a shortcut over the grass. And that's the path of desire because that for them is the least painful way of getting what they want. And so when you design a tool, um, Ideally, you can design it to fit their path of desire, um, because if it doesn't fit their path of desire, they're just not going to use it. Um, I, so ideally, you can do that. But I find it's very difficult to do that. And so it also takes a bit of an open-minded attitude during the training to say, look, 
here's here's a tool. Um, I think you know I designed this tool. I think uh, so, so. Taking the for example the agenda template I designed for them. Here's the agenda template I designed for you, and here's why I think it's good. But let's experiment with it. Let's try it and and see what you think of it. Let's design a meeting using it. Okay. Now, what do you what did you think of of using that and you know, then we have a discussion about the advantages and the challenges in using it. And then, okay, how would you adapt that to your needs? Uh, and that, I think, is the really critical part. So, for example, one thing in that agenda template was um, it has a, a section on um, uh, the structure of the discussion. And someone challenged me and said, you know, some meetings aren't that complicated. Some meetings are quite simple and, and don't need to have the structured discussion. And I, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so how could you adapt your, your agenda to that situation? And, and then they can go off and they can adapt, adjust the tool to their own needs. So I, I find, um, you know, you, you start with a tool and you, you, you design the tool the way you think it should work. Then the next step is to simplify it as much as possible. Um, anything that you think, you know, maybe these two parts are the same, put them together. Maybe this part, oh, they'll never use that. That's too complicated. Get rid of it. Uh, boil it down to what, uh, what is the absolute essential component and then test it um, with them and see what they like and what they don't like and then refine it. And even better is if they, if they can refine it. Um, and I find that with trainings that I've delivered over and over again, uh, those tools have got refined to the point where, um, you know, they're like, this is exactly what I want. Um, but it's normally in the first few rounds when you do it, where you have to go, uh, go back and do a lot more refinement. So design, test, refine is the basic process. And I think the critical bit for that, which I particularly like, is like you said, you're not presenting them the given finished article and expect them just to go off. Two parts of it, them testing it, is them also practicing out the context of what they're going to go and do as a result of the training. And also that element of ownership, isn't it? If they start to iterate on it or adjust it and simplify it to suit their needs, they'll start to own that tool rather than maybe use it once and say, well, that was Jamie's tool. That hasn't worked for me. Um, and so it dissipates straight away. Absolutely, yeah. It's got to fit into their world, yeah. Fantastic. And then the third part, which I, I really liked this approach, because you're right, there, there'd be, I think we could probably have a very interesting debate. If we got a bunch of 100 facilitators in a room together, you could almost divide it down the middle for those that <clears throat> believe you have to have absolute knowledge and expertise in an area versus those that prefer perhaps to see their expertise in, in learning design and, and allow the, the learners to bring their expertise there. But I particularly liked your idea of, of the awareness piece in your knowledge. So where you have that expertise is, unless you unpack it, you're likely to not be a very effective or useful facilitator for someone. And like you said, well, just drive, just drive the car. It's like, well, I can't get the gear stick in. I don't know where reverse is. How can I? And I've got to look in the mirror at the same time. Uh, and it makes me think, it's like the odd time, I mean, I've been driving for years, but the odd time anyone's asked me about it, and so I've thought more consciously about it, it's, it's felt quite clunky again. It's like, mm. I'm, yeah, I'm really consciously looking in the mirror both times when I pull away from something. I'm very consciously moving the gear stick rather than just allowing myself to do it automatically. Uh, and it's an interesting process, isn't it? Because it can actually, it sort of, it's, it sort of puts you back through that confidence unconscious model, doesn't it? And it puts you back yeah. to that 
conscious level where you realize maybe you've developed some incompetencies in your expertise that need addressing as well, which I think would help with the facilitation because it could display a certain degree of vulnerability as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I, when I wrote my, my book a few years ago, I found that, that that for me was really just a personal development experience. Um, I never expected to sell many copies. I spent six years writing it. But I found that the process of writing that uh, really helped me raise a lot of awareness of, oh, yeah, that's how I actually do things. And for example, um, asking questions to, to learners. Um, I, I remember when I started as a trainer, I tried asking questions and I, it fell flat on its face. And then six months later, somehow these questions are now working and I wasn't quite sure what was going on. And uh, as I was writing the book, there was one section where it, it was, uh, you know, I, I really challenged myself to think about how do I actually make questions work? And I realized after a lot of reflection and even just going back into the training room and trying to observe myself in that moment of how I do it, I realized that there were several steps that I follow. And, and one really critical step was build context before asking the question. Uh, so giving a, a bit of background information uh, to really narrow their scope of thinking so that when you do ask the question, they're already thinking in the right direction. I didn't realize I was doing that. So uh, it, it is really, really challenging to regain that awareness. And I think it, it takes a lot of hard work, a lot of observation and a lot of reflection. Um, and so for me, you know, writing a book really, really helped with that process. Um, but just generally observing and reflecting, it, it, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think what you've highlighted to me there is that thinking back again, if you imagine when we are running a session and facilitating a session, one thing we really want our participants to do either in that session or afterwards is some deep reflection. How many trainers and facilitators out there take time to reflect at the end of a session on the skills they've used and the way they've run that session so they can learn from it? And it doesn't need to take a lot of time, but it would be very, very useful practice, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it's good to go into the training room with a slightly different focus each time. I, I have this I have this principle called the 70-30 the principle, and um, I, I'm always going to go in with 70% of things that I've tried and tested. I know they're absolutely going to work, but I find it's really important to also ex use another 30% for experimenting. And it might be new activities or even new explanations or even like a new way of laying out the room or a new, I remember one time I went in and I decided I'm not going to use PPT. I'm just going to use this massive deck of photographs and I'm just going to point to each photograph as I'm giving the presentation it, you know, it didn't work very well but I at least had that other 70% to fall back on and I find when you're kind of you're challenging yourself with the, that 30% of experimenting with new things that really aids the reflection process because it gives you lots of new things to reflect on yeah Absolutely. And, and, and useful learning to take forward, like you said, this worked, this didn't work, uh, rather than the tried and tested, where by our very nature is going to become quite stale. I have to be honest, Jamie, I could talk to you all day about this. <laughs> I think I, I, what I really want to do is just quickly unpack these three things again that I think will be really useful for our listeners. So 
so designing practical training starts with this applied context theory that you have and it's, it's well it's not really a theory it's very practical it's really getting as much clarity as possible about the context of not just the role of the people that you're working with but the specific scenarios where the problems lie where they're they're most likely to encounter the biggest amount of problem and so what your solution or your learning or training is going to help resolve for them Secondly, build practical tools that they can take away with them, but they're not, they're not like perfected before they get their hands on them. They can test and iterate and practically use them throughout the session so they've got something that's very much useful for them to leave with. And thirdly, I think this is such genius um, advice for, and, and certainly for, for people maybe starting out in training facilitating roles is where you have your expertise and why, and why many people become trainers and coaches in the first place because they have an area of expertise in something is unpack that back to its stages, its steps, its processes so that you're not, um, you're not unaware of how that expertise is developed. Yeah, I, and I, I'd just like to say on that, um, that's the part about this industry that that excites me the most because in terms of our our development as facilitators i think that's where the most potential lies because if you unpack how you do things and then you package that into a tool um that is your ip and you can build a business out of that and of course we don't want to go into the training room and say this is how I do it. So you should do it as well. We want to go in with the attitude of, you know, this is what's worked for me. And I've tried it with lots of other people. It's worked for them. Let's see what ideas you get from this. But if you unpack how you do things and then package it up in a way that resonates with your audience, I think that's, you know, that's the most exciting thing about being in this industry. The possibilities are, are endless there. Absolutely. Jamie, I think you have shared so many nuggets today. It's incredible. Um, I think people want to connect and maybe find out more from you. So, so where would people find you? Website or LinkedIn profiles? How would people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah. So one is my website, uh, shapingparts.com, all one word, shapingparts.com. Um, and another is just look for Jamie Dixon, D-I-X-O-N on LinkedIn and you'll see, you'll see my face um, and uh, feel free to connect on there. I'm very, very active on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And we'll share those details on the, uh, on the show notes too, so that people have that as a reference. So thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give us a rating on your podcast app of choice. And if you'd like to connect with me, my website is www.giraffepad.com. And like Jamie, you'll also find me on LinkedIn. It's Mark Williams. Please feel free to direct message me with any suggestions around making learning sticky you'd like to hear about. And bye for now. Thank you.